0: We had a twitter uh, a tweet this morning from president trump so i uh, and they've kept him up uh and they kept our- him up
1: and they'll keep him up until january 20 of his last term and then he will be banned for life
0: well we could we should bet on that actually <laughs> uh stuart cuz then we could we could actually have a, an example this so that's a, I'll, I'll give you a bet i
1: i would bet that the the year he leaves office by the end of that year Uh, He will have been disadvantaged uh, in some fashion, some substantial fashion. Uh, You know, he'll lose his check. He'll uh, uh, lose his. Well, there is no monetization. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bet you I'll bet you 50 bucks.
0: Stuart, you said extirpate. That uh, uh, doing something to lose your check, I don't think is similar. Uh, okay. But I'll bet right. let, let's just say he'll be he'll be banned from Twitter. Okay. And I'll bet you fifty bucks, and you got a it's year a for it to happen because I deal. think he's he's going to sustain himself as a uh, particularly through that medium.
1: Welcome to episode 280 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I should say the views we express here don't reflect Uh, uh, those of our clients, uh, our institutions, our families, uh, uh, or our friends, or our former friends in many cases. Uh, Today, we're going to interview John Samples, who's the vice president of the Cato Institute and director of Cato Center for Representative Government, uh, uh, and uh, a classic libertarian. Is that fair, John?
0: Uh, I think a lot of libertarians would say uh, I'm not, but I, I think of myself as a classical liberal. That's what I'm defending, that that tradition.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Well, libertarianism shares with communism that it's never, according to its advocates, really been tried. Uh, uh, (laughs) That's why it it, uh, never uh, fails. I'm joined today on the News Roundup by uh, Evan Abrams, an associate from our Washington, D.C. office, Uh, uh, Matthew Hyman, a senior fellow at the National Security Institute at the George Mason University, uh, formerly with NSD. In fact, everybody... Here, I had uh, uh, a national security title in government. David Chris was uh, the assistant attorney general in charge of the national security division at DOJ, and Nate uh, Jones, uh, who's also with Culper Partners, uh, that uh, as a co-founder with David Chris was with the National Security Council. Uh, Nate, you were never with NSD at Justice.
2: Uh, I was briefly.
1: Ah, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Well, among uh, that group. I'm Stuart Baker and I was never at the National Security Division at the Justice Department, uh, but they made my life uh, uh, complicated uh, both at the National Security Agency and at the the Department of Homeland Security. You, you, You think that's unfair?
3: Totally fair. Uh, we we actually enjoyed making your life complicated, Stuart, and we continue to enjoy it now. And we're grateful for the opportunity to do it on your podcast. It's
1: it's a pleasure, right? Uh, it's a pleasure now for me to, to be able to say, and that's a wrap. You have no last words, uh, <laughs> uh, I should say. I'm just back from a trip to Jerusalem and to Petra. If you can go to Petra in Jordan do it. Uh, So that's uh, one recommendation. And another recommendation, uh, uh, we don't accept sponsors here, but uh, if I did, I would go to a company that makes a device uh, called TRTL. It's Turtle without any vowels. It's kind of depressingly trendy, uh, but it is a device that holds your head up while you're trying to sleep in economy class, uh, and unlike those stupid uh, pillows that we all have had and thrown out, um, this actually works. Uh, I got like seven, eight hours sleep both directions uh, uh, using this device. So if you get a chance, if you're interested in uh, trying to sleep, uh, especially in economy class, uh, um, I highly recommend the TRTL. David, there's just a breaking news on the Cloud Act. You talked about this a couple of episodes back, uh, and I actually borrowed a chunk of what you said uh, for an article I wrote for Lawfare. It says that uh, the U.S. and the U.K. have found time in the middle of all this other turmoil to negotiate a Cloud Act treaty that we're likely to see sometime in the next month.
3: Yes, and uh, apparently they've gotten their English to English translation skills up to stuff, and so uh, they've been able to do it. This is um, the Cloud Act is a, a framework solution for the problem posed by cross-border data transfers. Uh, you know, in today's world of multinational communications and data storage companies, data are stored all over the place. They can be stored in Redmond, Washington, in the United States, or in England, or in the Middle East, or wherever. And it just so happens that historically, many governments have had laws that on the one hand compel the production of data, and on the other hand, block the production of data from their home territory to other countries. And so this patchwork of conflicting requirements put people who hold data in a very awkward position and created a a real mess. The Cloud Act is a U.S. law that removes the U.S. blocking statute if and only if there's an executive agreement signed between the United States and another country, and if that other country's laws meet certain requirements that the U.S. executive branch certifies and Congress does not effectively veto. And here we finally have some agreement between the U.S. and the U.K., which is the first and will hopefully serve as the model for many others still to come.
1: So it'll be the, it will be the model, at least the U.S. government's view of what the model should be. I assume uh, uh, there was a flap. Alex Stamos had actually a, a pretty good. Tweetstorm on this topic, uh, and he criticized some of the press coverage, which wasn't very good, for saying that this was going to result in the decryption of a lot of data. Uh, he was a little more critical than maybe he should have been. It's true, this isn't going to affect end-to-end encryption. If, if WhatsApp has this stuff, uh, since it's all encrypted, they can't produce it, and the COD Act doesn't change anything. But Google yep. used to bring it back, uh, famously, with Gmail and it would decrypt it uh, on its servers uh, um, in the United States. So it was encrypted from the user's computer to Silicon Valley. uh, And from the point of view of the U.K. government, that was just encrypted. It was unreadable. Now they will get the plain text. So from a British point of view, this actually does undo some of the encryption that has been uh, a pain for them to deal with.
3: I mean, yeah, the the law really doesn't grant any new authority, legal authority to collect. But uh, the Brits have this IP Act, which is extremely powerful and which, if the agreement is signed, can now be brought to bear potentially. Also, as you say, you know, practical aspects um, may be affected by this. But it's not it's not fundamentally a statute that grants authority. It's fundamentally a statute that removes blocks So it is easy to overstate, either for good or bad, what this law does. Uh, depending on your point of view. It really is just designed to remove legal prohibitions on foreign governments who sign agreements with the U.S., you know, gathering data from U.S. providers in certain circumstances.
1: And it's not a treaty. It's an executive agreement. So they can just do it. Uh, this this administration and the Boris Johnson administration for as long as it lasts can can do. This. <laughs> Maybe I should <laughs> say that about both administrations.
3: It's um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, both administrations have been distracted by various things. And it is sort of I mean, not to be critical exactly, but it is amazing how long this has taken between these two very close allies with a common language and, you know, and a common approach in many ways to collection of data, both for law enforcement and intelligence, both being members of the Five Eyes. Uh, I mean, this is the special relationship. And it has still just been very, very difficult for them uh, to land the plane on this. Well,
1: I'm sure the negotiators asked for time with the heads of government uh, eight months ago and just got it. Speaking of which, uh, the president's uh, conversation with uh, Ukrainian leader uh, Zelensky uh, um, has been released. And sitting there in the middle of it is a reference to CrowdStrike. And this is our territory, uh, uh, cybersecurity. Uh, Nate, what the heck was CrowdStrike doing in the middle of a conversation between the president of the United States and the head of government in Ukraine?
2: The President of the United States raised it, and it's always a little dangerous to try to get inside his head. Um, but I'll, I'll do it anyway, and I'll try to resist the urge to talk about the rest. So first, the, some factual background. In the summer of 2016, when the DNC was notified that its uh, communications had been breached by an adverse nation state, uh, they went out and, and hired CrowdStrike, which is a private company that does cyber forensics and remediation. It's not unusual to go to these third parties to help with this um, when they don't have in-house expertise to handle it themselves. There's often an aversion to going to law enforcement or intelligence agents, letting them inside your system. So CrowdStrike came in, uh, made a determination that the Russians had penetrated the DNC, as we all know and helped them remediate that problem and, among other things, shared their findings with the Bureau. And, you know, we, we saw the ultimate product of that, which were charges um, by the special counsel's office against Russian entities for the hacking. So Trump seems to have a slightly different perspective on what transpired in 2016. And there are really two misconceptions. One is he, he references a missing server um, nobody's entirely sure what that means, but it seems to to basically reflect a fundamental misunderstanding of how cyber forensics works. But and, well, I,
1: uh, let, let's let's uh, to 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 be fair, yes, for sure, he's he he doesn't have the details. But what I think he must be saying is that uh, the DNC never actually let the FBI look at the server. Uh, they <laughs> insisted that the um, uh, attribution be based on what. CrowdStrike was providing to the FBI, and that's the, the fact that people are considering particularly suspicious on, on the right.
2: Right. And CrowdStrike's determinations were based both on, on direct access to the server, and as is typical in these kinds of cases, it's been reported that they created mirror images of, of the information that was on all of the relevant servers and um likely shared much if not all of that information with the bureau so they didn't have direct access to the server but they may have had direct access to the forensics information that was on the So server. is that
1: let, let me add, let me let me stop here that is a little bit unusual uh they're the victim of a crime the FBI is investigating the crime and they say yeah we're not going to let you see the primary evidence of the crime now there 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 are reasons why a white-collar defense lawyer would say that's the right answer. Uh, But it suggests that the DNC was trying to be the victim but not give the FBI full access to its communications.
2: That's right. And, you know, among other reasons, as you said, white-collar defense lawyers would typically tell their clients to do it that way. And the reason is because they would have access to all kinds of other information that's totally irrelevant to the investigation so some, you know, in the context of a white collar investigation, the company itself might pull the relevant information uh, and it to the Bureau. In this case, they lack the expertise to do that. So they brought in this very reputable, credible third party to do it for them. Okay. So there you know, there I don't think there are any credible allegations that the Bureau didn't have access to the relevant information it needed. But there are these questions about whether they had access to the original information or where they, whether their chain of custody was reliant on some credible third party.
1: So this is the, – the, the president is reflecting back what? the uh, right side of the internet is saying, or maybe the far right side of the internet is saying that that there's something suspicious here, that uh, uh, CrowdStrike was founded by a a guy who was born in Moscow, so maybe the whole thing is all uh, cooked up. Uh, Tom Bossert recently said, now that's just totally bogus, and I uh, am inclined to agree with him, but that's how crowdstrike ends up in the middle of this conversation almost as a shorthand reference by the president
2: that's right yeah um, as if people would would normally just gravitate right toward that conspiracy and understand what he's talking about and you know I, I think you know one of the interesting things questions that this raises for me is whether the president and others who subscribe to this kind of theory are actually in on their joke or if they actually believe this
1: stuff. I think the president believes this stuff. I think think the president, he gets a lot of his facts from Fox News and maybe from some of the blogs. I don't know. But in, in an odd way, it's giving him the benefit of the doubt to say that he probably believes this stuff. But I suspect that he does.
2: I actually tend to agree with you, Stuart, but I, to me, it's no less troubling that the man in the Oval Office is governing based on a set of facts that are completely detached from reality. That is something that, frankly, keeps me up at night.
1: Yeah. You know, he's, he, he keeps a little distance from it. He, he recognizes that it's coming from a bubble. Uh, and so he never, he usually doesn't fully buy in so much as kind of like with this one, Uh, Sort of allude to it, say it ought to, you know, deserves to be looked at. Uh, um, His version of caution is to say it and then to say maybe. Right. But
2: as as you said, you know, Bossert had not only come out and said what he said this weekend, but I believe he or someone else also said that they have repeatedly over the years tried to disabuse the president of this notion. The IC has concluded otherwise and confirm that Russia was behind this, not Ukraine. And thirdly, Mueller filed criminal charges to that effect. And so you have, uh, you know, across multiple fronts, reputable people telling him it's just not true. And he closes his ears to it and plows ahead with his baseless conspiracy theories, which is troubling.
1: Yes, the president should knock it off. David, uh, it looks as though... 215 renewal, FISA 215 renewal, is in real trouble on the Hill. Uh, um, How come?
3: Well, because it's not clear that the authority to collect under the new version of 215 is is either safe or effective uh, to use an FDA standard. So, just so people know the context for this you know after 2001 the government engaged in bulk collection of telephony metadata meaning a lot of information from almost all calls in terms of to and from information not the words that are spoken in the call but who called whom and when and for how long this is a lot of data but again not the content of any phone call uh, then you get uh, edward snowden's disclosures in 2013 and a two-year period of gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair that results in the Freedom Act in 2015, which ends bulk collection of telephony metadata, but substitutes in its place a kind of an iterative, ongoing, multi-pronged process of producing call detail records, this to, from, and related information, uh, as I say, on an iterative basis from the phone companies. And there's both complex law And frankly complex engineering that is required to set up all the data feeds for implementing that new Freedom Act Authority in 2015 and what we have learned now in the interim period since then is that it just didn't work and it broke and the phone companies produced the wrong data and the result was that NSA basically had to eliminate all the data that it had collected under the new authority and just throw it away and then try to start over and it's not even clear that for a while ago, that they even did start over so against that factual background a lot of people are asking Jeez, is the game worth the candle is the juice worth the squeeze what's the real value of this data and given how much money it costs and how hard and complex it is and the problems do we really need this damn thing?
1: So the, the, a short version of this is that the, the, most of the same congressmen who imposed this complicated, expensive, unworkable Rube Goldberg mechanism on the National Security Agency are shocked that it failed and are blaming NSA and want to take away the authority.
3: <laughs> so and the official position, however, of your government is we need it. We want it. We love it. And we're not giving it up without a fight. But certainly, as reported in the news media only, uh, there is reason to doubt whether the real professionals who actually execute on these authorities are as enamored of them as, you know, sort of the statement of administration position would suggest. So I think there's a little bit of a sense from some lawmakers that even the government just doesn't really want this, at least at the deep state level. Well, you're not uh, going
1: to – you're never going to get President Trump to weigh in on this. Uh, it, it's just not – Well, it's, it's I'd not do it. Now, he
3: was against the FISA Amendments Act renewal for a few hours there before he was then for it after uh, some people told him both that the CrowdStrike server theory was bogus and that the FAA was not used to spy on Trump Tower. So, so just, perhaps uh, an educational process could occur here that would get him to uh, – Take a position one way or the other on it. I, I'm, I'm ever optimistic.
1: Uh, I, I, I find it hard to believe that he's just going to – this is not the, a kind of issue that he's going to care about uh, and not particularly a community that he's going to go to bat for is my guess. Uh, yeah. Flush from that victory, EFF and the New York Times are hoping to expand the battlefield uh, to national security letters. Uh, and they did I, what I think of as a classic FOIA – a story where you get a bunch of documents in a FOIA, you sit around and analyze them until you have shaped the story exactly the way you want it, and you hand it to the New York Times, and they call one person in the Justice Department who doesn't even remember that there was a FOIA case, uh, and then publish the story with all the quotes that you want in it, and some kind of vague government uh, uh, response. Uh, Is that fair?
3: Yeah, I, I got to say, Stuart, I'm a little bit with you on this one. Um, the the New York Times reporter who wrote this story is, I think, generally quite good, but I think uh, especially the first half of this story is really uh, quite bad. It is, you know, just basically using semi-breathless prose to advise us of two points, both of which are really quite obvious uh, to anyone paying attention, and in my view, not remotely newsworthy. Which is one, the government issues a lot of national security letters. And two, national security letters have been served, not just on big tech companies, but on credit and financial institutions and others. And I mean, no, say
1: it ain't (laughs) so. Yeah,
3: I mean, it's nearly as bad as if the government sort of as if the Times wrote a, a story that based on a FOIA request that they're shocked, shocked to hear that there have been hundreds of thousands of grand jury subpoenas issued, not just for testimony, but in some cases for documents. And that almost all of these subpoenas go out without advanced judicial approval. And some of them have been used to lead to criminal indictments. Oh, no. So it, it is. I mean, I don't want to overstate it uh, because there is a certain amount of context setting. But, you know, there are five NSL statutes and many of them are in are directed explicitly at credit reporting agencies and financial institutions broadly defined. And, you know, it's been that way for 16 or 19 years Uh, And so there is just a certain pearl clutching kind of thing in the front half of this. I I will say, I mean, I think and by the way, I guess, you know, there's public reporting in the IC transparency report and in prior inspector general reports about the numbers of uh, national security letters issued over time. And, you know, there are a lot of them, which, again, ought to shock nobody Uh, So that's sort of the first nine or ten paragraphs of the story. The the rest of it's somewhat interesting, which is to what extent is the government really periodically reviewing and, if appropriate, terminating these gag orders that often accompany uh, NSLs? And it's certainly interesting to explore that, and it would be great to get some statistical information on that. Unfortunately, the article really doesn't have anything of that sort. It's more anecdotal, and it's been sort of whipped up, in my view, into something That's a little bit more than what's justified. I would like to see some statistical and systematic information on gag orders and their termination. Again, that might be interesting, but it doesn't look like we really have that here. Uh, So I was left, I guess, a little underwhelmed.
1: OK. Well, here's something the Justice De- uh, Department has done that I'm really enthusiastic about. Uh, Edward Snowden <laughs> has a book out and uh, I had vowed that I would like to read it, but I would only read it if I could shoplift it because I was <laughs> not – I was determined that he wouldn't get any of the royalties from me. Uh, but now the Justice Department has come to my rescue by saying that the the royalties ought to go to the U.S. Government. Uh, um, Nate, uh, <laughs> what, what are the prospects the U.S. government going to succeed with this argument?
2: It seems pretty good. I mean, you still might want to wait until the court rules just to be <laughs> sure. But, um, you know, it's it's a pretty straightforward breach of contract theory that they have saying that Snowden signed NDAs when he worked for the CIA and NSA as a contractor. And among other things, those things required him to submit any publications, uh, written publications for prior review and approval. There's a case, uh, SNEP v. United States, that seems pretty well on point that uh, suggests the department is on pretty solid grounds to to seek this, uh, this remedy. And so if I were a betting man, I would say that the the Justice Department will ultimately prevail, and you will be free to buy as many of these as you like.
1: That's terrific. That's terrific. No, I and I should say that uh, over the weekend uh, I sent uh, uh, Edward Snowden a message via Twitter saying, uh, uh, "You know, enough of these powder puff uh, interviews with fanboys. Uh, why don't you come on the podcast and we'll interview you here." Uh, uh-huh. I have wow. yet, uh, yet to receive a response. Uh, uh, I know he reads my stuff because he's constantly kind of nagging at me when, uh, when I, I post something that he thinks he can uh, score points on. Uh, yeah. so, Stuart, we'll I would
3: pay good money to hear you interview Fast Eddie Snowden, really. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're going to have to move along. Um, FedEx victimized by NotPetya and now being sued. By claims that they understated the impact, uh, this is a shareholder lawsuit. Matthew, uh, pretty much standard uh, uh, shareholder suit, uh, uh, but they're 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 expanding the scope, the time scope of the uh, uh, alleged uh, failure to disclose.
4: Yes. Yeah, so the reason we're mentioning a shareholder securities class action suit on in this forum is the fact that the hook is the NotPetya attack which struck TNT, which is a a European package delivery company that FedEx acquired. Uh, And uh, the argument in the complaint is that FedEx was delinquent in getting out ahead and timely disclosing the severity of the impact on the operation, the attrition of customers as a result of the NotPetya attack. And uh, they also point out that in this uh interim period between the attack and it be, and the market being able to fully appreciate the damage that FedEx's CEO and COO sold shares and their argument is they took advantage of everyone else's ignorance by selling high before the stock dropped when everyone then learned of the full extent of the harm to the TNT subsidiary.
1: So we're going to just see more and more of these. Uh, yeah. Because uh, if you can expand it to two years of, <laughs> exactly. uh, uh, post-breach, uh, uh, somebody's bound to sell something in, in, in those years. Uh, and uh, there's always going to be a surprise of some sort.
4: Yeah. And the interesting thing that I think will be important to watch in this lawsuit is if it gets to trial, which is highly unlikely, um, how effective will uh, – a defense counsel be able to educate the court around this idea and the jury around the idea that when you suffer a cyber breach, you don't know everything immediately. And it does does actually take a long time to figure out the full extent of it.
1: Yeah. And we had Frank Blake, who uh, was CEO of Home Depot, on uh, – uh, and uh, – uh, probably a, two months ago, and he said the lesson I learned is you have to get the information out, uh, even though it's partial. Uh, and in this case, nobody's arguing that, that they didn't disclose how bad it was when it started. Uh, the argument is, well, they didn't disclose how many customers didn't come back uh, because of the breach. That, that may be a bogus argument, but that's their argument because that's when the stock dropped.
4: Right. And I think it's also – well, I haven't studied all of FedEx's disclosures during the time period. I think it's also a reminder that if you are drafting these disclosures for companies, it's really important that you keep warning shareholders that this is everything we know now. Right. There could be more that we learn that they did. That, you know, that, and we don't know if they did that, but if they didn't do that, that's a – a warning to others that they should be doing that.
1: So we've gotten this far without saying anything about China. But, uh, uh, Evan, uh, uh, China is the reason we have a complete rewrite of Cepheus, And that rewrite has been sitting around for 18 months without regs to actually implement it. Uh, Now we've seen a massive reg out of Treasury. You read it. I'm still trying to get through it. Uh, can you give us the one-minute version of what's new in these, uh, in the Treasury Reg?
5: Yes. Uh, well, that's right. There's about 300 plus pages of new regu- proposed regulations from CFIA. So there is a lot.
1: Don't to complain. There. This is how associates become partners. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be the only one who's read all 300 pages.
5: Well, I, I can say I have now read all 300 pages and uh, it tracks fairly closely with, I think, what people were expecting when a firma was passed, which, as you noted, was quite a while ago. I think if you were to identify two major points to take away, one would be the expansion to certain non-controlling investments. So traditionally, CFIUS uh, only had jurisdiction for foreign investments where there was control of a U.S.
1: Which business. they interpreted very, very broadly in yes. their favor. Right? And now they've it, uh, they've said even that, which was basically if it's over 10% and you have any cloud at all, uh, we're going to call it control. Now they've gone beyond that.
5: Yes, that's right. So now the regulations... Cover certain types of non controlling investments in U.S. businesses that have certain activities involving critical technology, critical infrastructure, or sensitive personal data, which are all defined in the regulations. But this seems likely to capture a significant number of transactions that were not captured, at least arguably, yep. under CIFUS's traditional jurisdiction. The other big takeaway, I think, is the expansion to cover certain real estate transactions, particularly those involving maritime ports and airports. And And
1: at this time, rather nicely, they gave us a list of sensitive areas.
5: They did, which I think many people were surprised to see. There is an appendix that includes sensitive military installations. And depending on how sensitive the installation is, the regulations may or may not capture your transaction if you're one mile out or 100 miles out or 12 miles for certain offshore facilities. So I think that list is going to be pretty helpful to practitioners who, for a long time, have complained that they have no good way of knowing if. Uh,
1: trans- well, and to the KGB and the uh, the, the, the <laughs> Chinese uh, uh, military intelligence officers who want a list of places they should uh, uh, send their uh, their agents. Uh, but uh, yes, it's um, uh, my hat is off to them to. Produce this because uh, I thought it was going to be another six months before we got it.
5: Yes, we'll see when we get the final regulations. They are due by February of 2020, as required in the statute. Uh, we'll see if we get them. That's going to be that's going to be really hard.
1: Because when does the comment period end? It ends October 17th. Okay, so uh, uh, that is a staggeringly difficult timetable.
5: Yes, and I think there will probably be a good number of comments for them to wade through.
1: David, uh, you had said the last time you were on, I think, that you thought there was going to be pressure on end-to-end encryption and that the Cloud Act was going to be part of it. Uh, and I So I wrote a long piece for Lawfare uh, uh, saying more or less that and uh, adding in my thoughts on other sources of pressure, uh, suggesting that uh, it's going to be hard for Silicon Valley to keep – and to end encryption, and um, right on schedule, the New York Times has this in- long and depressing and uh, you know uh, hard to read story about child pornography, uh, in which they actually, uh, I would say leaned, clucked a little at the fact that Silicon Valley was still expanding end-to-end encryption into contexts where uh, child porn distributors could use it uh, uh, to hide their crimes.
3: Yeah. End-to-end encryption is clearly coming under very focused and renewed levels of pressure. Uh, Attorney General Barr and British Home Secretary Patel have both, as I mentioned last time, made some very aggressive comments about them about encryption in public places, Um, and the noted intimate relationship between Bill Barr and the New York Times, uh, and the way in which that newspaper serves as a kind of a mouthpiece for the Trump administration's (laughs) agenda, (laughs) uh, has resulted in this article. Um, I mean, I think the article actually shows, in my mind, and I think your excellent Lawfare Post also shows The key in some ways at a very high level of generality to this issue is the way in which it is framed. If pro-encryption positions are characterized and seen as pro-privacy, then they are very favorable because everybody likes privacy. Uh, But if they are successfully portrayed in the frame of being anti-safety instead of pro-privacy and particularly anti-child safety, uh, then the debate starts to shift and you also get new players potentially weighing in against end-to-end encryption in the debate. And so there's a lot of pressure on on the side of framing the encryption debate in terms of safety and child safety. Uh, In particular, the article, I think, uh, contributes to that narrative. I don't you know, weigh in to suggest an outcome to it, but more just to sort of say that I think is a potential game changer in the way this debate plays out legally, politically, and otherwise.
1: Yeah, I I, I think I might have said in the article, uh, but I certainly thought as was I was writing it uh, just your point that uh, if you ride with the hare, uh, you love end-to-end encryption, and if you ride with the hounds, you hate it. Uh, I and what's happening in the New York Times article is they've discovered a reason to ride with. The hounds. Uh, And I think uh, Silicon Valley is discovering as they, as they seek to extirpate right-wing speech from all uh, um, social platforms, they're going to discover that there's right-wing speech that is protected by encryption, and they've got to find a way to get it out. And that was part of um, uh, the the article, that uh, even Silicon Valley, which usually thinks of itself as riding with the hare, uh, is increasingly uh, riding with the hounds. Yep. So apparently China is now doing social credit scoring for businesses. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, how seriously should we take this? I think for individuals, it's been a little overhyped. It's less effective than uh, uh, many people feared. Uh, But for businesses, uh, maybe it will turn out to be much more dangerous.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the early signs are that it could be a much more effective tool against a business than individual Chinese citizens. And some of the things they're looking at uh, when determining a business's credit score are payroll records, you know, uh, results in court, environmental records, and my personal favorite, the number of employees in your business that are members of the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously, the more you have, the higher your – the more positive score you'll receive. And, and uh, it's not
1: that easy to become a member, right? You, you, have, you kind of have to it, – it's like getting into the uh, uh, Cosmos Club.
4: Well, maybe you could speak to that, Stuart. I, I, <laughs> no, I never got I, I, in. <laughs> but I think the the interesting thing is, uh, you know, and, the, and and the article points out the 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 lever that it gives the Chinese Communist Party against uh, foreign businesses that are operating in China. So uh, they they sent uh, sort of nasty letters that track this social credit language to. Uh, United, Delta and American Airlines because they were outraged that they had listed um, destinations such as Taiwan as not being part of China. Right. Mm-hmm. And they said, as a result of this, your social credit score could be low. And I think uh, a lot of analysts are looking at this saying this is a great way for them to really go after foreign businesses because how could they ever have the same credit score that a local Chinese business would have?
1: So I uh, this ties to uh, the – Uh, standards that TikTok uses to uh, uh, refuse to show Americans' uh, speech Mm -hmm. about uh, various uh, social issues. I'm going to save that for the discussion with John Samples because we're running out of time Uh, uh, and uh, just ask Matthew about uh, um, this latest French uh, doctrine on uh, the international law that applies to cyber conflict. Uh, This... You know, the U.K. has done this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. has given a few uh, uh, legal advisor speeches. Uh, yeah. um, this is a pretty detailed and thoughtful and I would say uh, sort of old school approach to oh. uh, uh, cyber conflict international law.
4: Yeah, it is. Um, and in many respects, uh, what the French have – so you're right, Stuart. The French have sort of set themselves out as doing something comprehensive on the topic Um And as compared to the U.S., which is, as you said, have done piecemeal speeches by the State Department legal advisor early in the uh, first Obama administration, and what the French do is they they believe in things like sovereignty. Sovereignty really matters. Well, and they believe in
1: it in in, in a very specific sense, which is not everybody believes in sovereignty, but uh, uh, the French believe that just sending electrons into their territory is it's an infringement a, of their sovereignty.
4: That's exactly right. So they don't take this sort of, well, you can send your electrons to my territory, but as long as it isn't too disruptive, you haven't violated my sovereignty. The French say, nope, you send your electrons uh, across the border of France and, and you are at a minimum raising a sovereignty question around what you're doing.
1: And the other I thing th- that, they, that I saw in there was they basically dismiss the U.S. view that uh, if you're unable or unwilling to stop private attacks from your territory, we're going to go in and clean out that nest of
4: pirates by right. ourselves. Right. That's exactly right. And and they take the view that that is not appropriate under international law. You can't do that. I would say otherwise, more often than not, they're largely tracking what, yep. what the folks in the Tallinn 2.0 process came out with but you know i think it's interesting to see where france has come out on this thing i think in a lot of areas the us would agree with the french there are a few areas where we'd quibble with them but it's you know it's it's they are to be credited for actually articulating where they view these things,
1: and the UN is going to have two working groups on <laughs> <laughs> on norms because yes. uh, like 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 the guy said the, the nice thing about standards is there's so many to choose
4: from. That's exactly right. And so you've got the the one working group uh, which has been called the GGE, which I believe is the Government Group of Experts. Uh, which is largely, if you look at the list of countries, it's, it's the U.S. and its traditional Western-oriented allies, whether they're in the West or they're in Asia, but groups like Japan and Korea are part of that. And then you've got the, my favorite name, the open-ended group, which is a very Kafka-esque sounding title for an organization. And what a surprise. Well, the really, two primary yeah, members. The, the United
1: Nations must have 450 open-ended yes.
4: groups. But uh, <laughs> China and Russia are part of that one. And so uh, we'll have these two groups duking it out for global standard-setting supremacy.
1: So I, I'm, I'm going to cut you off there. We were going to talk about how Iran is going to be the next uh, Guernica where uh, people try out uh, cyber war tactics. Uh, uh, but we don't know that. Uh, but that looks like what the president wants. Uh, and so uh, we should be watching that space. But why don't we wait until it actually happens uh, and cover it? Uh, so let's turn to with our interview with John Samples. Uh, John, you've been very patient uh, as we've been talking about all these other topics. Uh, uh, John's the vice president at the Cato Institute, director of Cato Center for Representative Government. Uh, And earlier this year, he wrote an article for Cato that got my attention uh, entitled, uh, Why the Government Should Not Regulate Content Moderation of Social Media. Uh, We'll put a link to that in the show notes. John, uh, my quick uh, an unfair summary of your article is that uh, uh, you're channeling Dr. Pangloss. Uh, this is the best of all possible worlds, uh, and uh, we should just relax and enjoy it. Uh, uh, tell, me, tell me why that's unfair. It, it seemed to me you were basically saying uh, we should let the uh, platforms do what they want. Uh, government has no role, or at least the U.S. government has no role, and uh, everything will turn out fine.
0: Well, I actually think that uh, there's very little role for any government, so I'm not going to be hung with the Europeans on this particular podcast or anywhere else Stuart. it. Um, I don't think I'm Panglossian in the following sense, I uh, and maybe I am in another sense. In general, I don't necessarily think this is the best of all possible worlds, right? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. We'll talk about some recent Facebook stuff that uh, I'm going to be critical of. The real question is— can the world, do you think it's likely that the world is going to improve all that much if, or improve at all, if government is given increasing powers in this area? And my answer to that is, I don't think so, because that's a traditional free speech point of view, that the government role in speech uh, is going to be a one. I would say this in general, and I think this point is often mistaken because we focus on the battle between sort of the postmodern left and the postmodern right about these things. Really, the other thing that uh, Facebook made clear this week is at stake here is we're talking about giving uh, elected officials more power over uh, a, a new communications media that actually threatens them in many ways that they don't understand very well, and some of them benefit from it, but they don't control it very well. Now, here's what how I do stick with the status quo, and I think this makes me something of a conservative on this. I think the principles that we've sort of worked on over the last 50 years or so in the United States and are recognized principles are actually pretty good ones. The First Amendment prevents government from uh, doing anything to the speech of people on uh, facebook or other social media, but there's two other things: One is the Supreme Court has recognized that the First Amendment doesn't apply in uh, areas that uh like uh, private industry private uh you know shopping malls, but also facebook and finally, of course, Congress itself has recognized that uh, government has a limited role, and that really this is a pri- uh priority for private judgment and private oversight uh, in uh, Section 230, which has two different aspects of it. But generally speaking, uh, the private has been given power uh, over this area. So I I think those principles are fine, but I think they're fine because I think turning over uh, a new communications media to uh, elected officials as politicians is not a good idea.
1: So I, I – let me let me start with the Supreme Court stuff. Uh, I, I, I agree that uh, since the 80s or so, the court has gotten much more um, firmly convinced of the absolute uh, value of the First Amendment in all contexts. But before that, uh, uh, the last time we had a, a real communications revolution, which was uh, – uh, the spread of broadcasting, <laughs> uh, politicians got very exercised about how it affected the discourse. It, it there was suddenly a set of very dominant speakers that uh, hadn't existed before. And the reaction um, of the body politic was to say, we need to make sure that they are fair to all points of view. And we got uh, um, uh, the fairness doctrine. We got equal time doctrines. And those only really died after cable Made it clear that uh, that there, the dominance of these broadcast media had been eroded uh, uh, when it was when they were dominant, they were also regulated.
0: Well, that's correct, but I, I don't think that was a good thing in a, in a variety of ways. If you look at Fred Friendly's book uh, about the First Amendment from the mid seventies, Friendly being a fairly standard liberal of that time, what you discover is that. Uh, that both, uh, the Kennedy administration used the Fairness Doctrine to get rid of those pesky uh, preachers give, uh, giving uh, Kennedy problems with some of his nuclear treaties, and then the Nixon administration, actually in a, a much more public way, and then also probably a private way, uh, threatened used use the Fairness Doctrine to try to, u- to use local affiliates against the CBS Evening News. Tom Hazlitt's recent book, The Political Spectrum, was a, something of a revelation to me on this, because he uncovered some memos where CBS Evening News uh, higher ups were really saying to the administration, you know, we're really on your side on this. Again, this is the point about leverage. The other thing I would say about. Uh, politicians and new communications media. To me, it's 1968 that's a crucial year here. You have McCarthy, Wallace, and Nixon all using television for the first time in really uh, dramatic ways. You go back, Congress comes back in 1969. What is the first bill you get? A bill to limit spending on broadcast, a campaign finance bill. And for the next couple of years, you have things like that. I think really um, members, particularly in Congress, are very – they don't see the advantages in this to them, and they're very wary of it, and that's really – one of the focuses, although, of course, the left-right battle is an important one.
1: Here well, too. let me t- let me try the, the, the right view of this. Uh, uh, Silica, the, the, I think the view from the right is that Silicon Valley is a haunt of millennial social justice well, uh, warriors who are determined that uh, uh, what they see as uh, the success of uh, uh, candidate Trump uh Enabled in part by the uh, direct communications that were possible as a result of uh, 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 social media, must never succeed again. Uh, That he, he and his ilk have to be excluded from public discourse in the long run, Uh, and there. pretty good at doing that, uh, either directly or by tilting all of the complicated rules that uh, they administer uh, um, as a way of disadvantaging conservative speech so that uh, conservatives who benefited from the breakdown of the monopoly on uh, information uh, that mainstream media used to have are going to discover that actually that was the golden age of conservatism and uh, uh, that Private suppression of speech, from their point of view, is at least as bad as government suppression.
2: Well,
0: I got a Twitter uh, a tweet this morning from President Trump, so I, I, and they've kept him up. Uh, and They kept artic- him up,
1: and they'll keep him up until January 20 of his last term, and then he will be banned for life.
0: Well, we could we should bet on that, actually, <laughs> uh, Stuart, because then we could we could actually have a, an example. This. So that's I'll, an I'll give you a tradition.
1: bet. I, I would bet that the, the year he leaves office, by the end of that year, uh, he will have been disadvantaged uh, in some fashion, some substantial fashion. Uh, you know, he'll lose his check. He'll uh, uh, lose his. Well, I there is no monetization. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll bet you I'll bet you 50 bucks.
0: Stuart. You said extirpate. That uh, uh, doing something to lose your check. I don't think is similar. Uh, okay. but I'll but right. let, let's just say he'll be he'll be banned from Twitter. Okay, and I'll bet you fifty bucks. And you got a it's year a for it to happen because I deal. think he's he's going to sustain himself as a. Uh, particularly through that medium. But th- this is a general issue here. I There's no question in, uh, in my mind, it was a little bit early on, but not so much now, that most, you know, I'm sitting right now in Menlo Park, California, talking to you and um, everyone around me, as far as I could tell, is a liberal Democrat, except maybe for a few investors. Uh, it's, yeah, that's the general culture. And some of the uh, people that work at the You know, these companies certainly are. However, consider uh, Prager University, Dennis Prager's op ed in the Wall Street Journal, which he was complaining about censorship here. Uh, If you read it closely, what he said is that uh, about three quarters of his uh, videos that he uses on YouTube, he puts up on YouTube, had nothing done to them, that they got, I believe he said, over a billion views over several years, that the ones he was complaining about had been sort of marked because they had a thing where kids, uh, people who request it, uh, can be uh, essentially filtered for violence or other uh, kinds of things that parents often uh, request. In other words, they were still up for people who hadn't requested this kind of filter. You know, if they're really – if Google and YouTube are good at censoring, they're really – or trying to censor, they're really doing a terrible job if you're getting a billion views out there.
1: Yeah, you know, let me me suggest that they uh, – their ability to disadvantage speech is – has a wide spectrum of – tools. Uh, And, uh, you know, to the extent that uh, uh, they list something as the equivalent of pornography so that kids and uh, sensitive uh, adults don't see it, it has a dramatic impact on uh, uh, advertising revenue. And the Supreme Court has said, uh, you know, you can't you can't. Um, if you're a government, you can't say the internet is only going to have speech on it that is fit for children to see. Um, eh, but uh, uh, what Google's doing in that case is saying uh, uh, we're going to take these rules and we're going to apply them to you mainly because we don't like your views, not because your speech is particularly offensive to, or, or dangerous to children, uh, except insofar as it uh, uh, persuades them that maybe they should listen to a, a Republican candidate sometimes.
0: I don't know that uh, the one on the Ten Commandments was doing anything like that. It had some reference to Nazi violence. As a, and I think actually as a conservative, uh, which I'm not sure either one of us are, but it, as a conservative, I think I would feel pretty good about uh, a service that allows parents to decide what their children see, not just along lines of uh you know, violence, but also, uh, excuse me, pornography or whatever, but also violence. And yet that br- does bring us to 230 in a in a sort of way, because the whole, you know, 230 was an alternative bill to deal with obscenity on the internet. And so there was a good faith, as you know, a good faith uh, element to it for taking down and uh, preventing liability for the companies of taking down a series of things Uh, obscene and violent and so on. And again, this would seem to me uh, to be something that actually conservatives have argued for. The actual bill itself, much of it, as you know, got struck down eventually about obscenity, and this is what remains. I guess uh, on the general question, it seems to me that the question of whether the companies themselves are out to get conservatives is still an open question. The larger question, though, is would they have the right to do so even if they wanted to? The New Yorker, for example, and here I've got to go into an area where I would say conservatives have some reasons for anxiety. The New Yorker over the, the uh, summer uh, ran an issue in which they basically argued uh, through U.N. Uh, co- uh, groups and so on that uh, Google and YouTube – and Facebook should take a strong – they should be biased. They should take a position in favor of really a left-wing political agenda, a UN political agenda, and that they should go around looking for that. Uh, But that's not what I see happening here. I don't see – and I discussed this with a person at YouTube just the other day – who was a conservative, by the way, who was uh, high, highly ranked in terms of their uh, content moderation. And there was just no interest in going down that. And the reason is that would be a political disaster for the company. And the other thing we have to ask is, you know, about 35 percent, even today, 35 percent of America identifies as conservative. Does Mark Zuckerberg, you know, trying to build this worldwide thing? Does he really want to alienate or potentially offend one third of the population? I think the business side of this is generally overlooked by conservatives who in the past have been generally pretty focused on that kind of
1: thing. I think, I think it's fair to say that it's not good for business, for Silicon Valley companies to get caught doing it, but that if they can do it without getting caught, uh, uh, if they've got plausible deniability, if they can say, oh, yeah, no, that was a, a, a neutral rule that was applied. Oh, maybe it was a mistake. I'm sorry. We're taking – we'll, we'll, we'll give it back to this person who managed to get a phone call from Mitch McConnell uh, uh, and the other people that we suppressed, we'll, they'll have to get to Mitch first uh, uh, as well. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, yeah, it's it's not complete censorship. It's, uh, as somebody once said about uh, Microsoft in its uh, heyday, uh, they don't prevent you from running in the race. They just throw stones in your path at every turn. Uh, yeah. And I think that's more of the Silicon Valley platform approach to conservatives, they keep taking you down for one reason or another mm. uh, if you start to really get under their skin. Uh, uh, but if you don't have much effect, then they're happy to leave you up.
0: Well, Maybe that's why I'm up.
1: That's yes. me too. <laughs> uh,
0: they, uh, they, uh, you said uh, the Penn view issue, to return to that, I'm, now I'm going to be uh, – uh, a little less pen glossy, and, and but I think this is explicit. You're talking about shadow banning that sort of thing. I think that's yep. harder, but that's you know a, a demanding transparency about those things can be more of an, uh, a solution to that. Again, do we have to go bring in the in this area the heavy hand of government? Uh, last week, a friend of mine who's a climatologist had uh, published a piece that was posted on Facebook about his longstanding argument. About uh, global warming, about a plateau of speakers. He's not a climate change denier. He's a you know credential climatologist, all that sort of thing. And it got uh, labeled as false. Uh, and then he and another a guy named Patrick Moore, who's uh, fairly well known in these circles, complained to Facebook, and then the label was taken out. Now, the reason I mention this is uh, something I think's not talked about am- enough, which is that the reason it got labeled false, the claim about uh, plateauing of temperatures, was because they had referred the claim to a fact checker the fact checkers play a role i think that probably isn't uh, noticed enough with facebook and maybe others and of course uh, this had been a group that was not exactly uh, favorable to and not looking so is this a debatable point or not they they thought this was just probably something along the lines of climate denial or it was certainly a wrong fact uh, I think the companies uh, need to be. They, they the fact you know they say they don't want to be. Facebook and particular said it doesn't want to be the arbiter of truth, but when you are concerned about false news, falsities, falsehoods, those kinds of things, which they are, and they may well have good reasons to be that, you've got to be very careful about who you're talking you know, who with you're about Who your fact checkers facts. are.
1: Yeah. No, I, yeah. I agree with you. And, and 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 that that's a field that has been extraordinarily corrupted, uh, probably because uh, the, the it sounds like such a neutral... Uh, uh, undertaking, uh, but in fact uh, uh, many of the f- uh, people who report to do fact-checking or who purport to identify hate crimes, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center being the most egregious mm-hmm. example, uh, are, are simply in the business of closing the Overton window on uh, uh, views that they find uh, distasteful. Um, let me ask you one last question because I, 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 I do want to make sure we've covered this uh, Okay. Uh, TikTok uh, is the subject of increasing scrutiny. It's the most popular uh, or fastest growing, uh, mm-hmm. I should say, uh, social media platform, wholly owned by a Chinese company that is, uh, um, uh, you know, quite comfortable with the uh, government of uh, China Uh, and uh, it's been disclosed that they have a whole bunch of moderation tools that are designed to make sure that nobody uh, thinks anything ever happened in Tiananmen Square except uh, tourist pictures Uh, uh, and that what's going on in Hong Kong now is uh, the equivalent of an Antifa uh, riot. Uh, um, And uh, they are having an impact on what American's Can say because this is an American uh, um, service, uh, at least as uh, uh, as used here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Similarly, the European Union has told Facebook if you find hate speech or uh, 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 terrorist inspiring uh, speech, you got to take it down in an hour. We don't care where it is. We want it down in an hour, Um, obviously, and and, it'll cost you billions. uh, And obviously that leads to an over uh, 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 suppression uh, and doesn't differentiate particularly between speech in the United States and elsewhere. The easiest thing for the social media platforms is to take it down everywhere. Um, And so – China is regulating what Americans get to see and read. The Europeans are regulating what Americans get to see or read. Are we in a situation where uh, the First Amendment is just a kind of unilateral disarmament by the United States?
0: First of all, on the Europeans, my understanding is that – and. This was also uh, the right to be left alone decision that came down, I think, a week or two ago. Similar result is that there's geo blocking uh, on what, uh, yes, they. Generally speaking, say Facebook is the example here. They uh, follow local laws, so they will follow that. You're saying that the, the I'd danger be very is that surprised. Yeah,
1: I think on, on on things that 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 uh, uh, relate to terrorist speech and probably hate speech as well. I'm guessing that the easiest thing in the world is for uh, uh, the, the platforms to take it down in the United States as well. I mean, who wants to be no. in favor of leaving hate speech up?
0: Well, if they can do it easily and if the political, you know, the my general rule here is that more speech rather than government's the example. You and I are talking about something with TikTok, too, that was disclosed. We're complaining about it. Uh, I'll write a thing later today about things I don't like about Facebook. I think that can be adequate. On the TikTok thing, uh, that's troubling, of course, because they're so closely related to a government. But there's still not a... Uh, organization that is part their their private organization in that sense in a general sense. So I think the general rule of having government wouldn't government have to d- differentiate about uh, and call sort of uh, government owned corporations anywhere would uh, have to have a different set of rules. Uh, I think generally our tradition of free speech is not a disarmament but really a strength. I don't you know. We've had RT uh, television on in this country, both as an unnamed foreign agent and as a disclosed foreign agent. It is everywhere. If people wanted it, they could have more of it. And it has destroyed our culture, as far as I know. Uh, Things always seem bad to people on the right, uh, maybe even to libertarians, too. But it's also true that our faith—I mean, the basic issue here is— Do you think that most Americans can receive these messages and can um, make the right decision over the long term? And I I still think that's true. If they
1: know that those are – Government communications from a government that doesn't have our interests at heart, maybe, uh, but we're a long way from that. The FARA disclosures uh, uh, are limited uh, uh, to the RT, for example. It has no impact on um, decisions by uh, the social media platforms that are driven by governments but not mandated by governments. Uh, so I think you know maybe there's maybe there's room there. Certainly the First. Amendment room, in my view, and and maybe policy room for saying we need a much broader disclosure of what the role of foreign governments is in what we get to consume. Uh,
0: there's the question of disclosure I discuss uh, in regard to the Russian. And one of the odd things I would point out here about this is that arguably uh, – Facebook overdid it on the disclosure, and and they were responding to the 2018-2017 revelations about Russia. Essentially, they decided to set up a transparency regime in which everybody that buys an ad has to reveal all sorts of things that you could never – the federal government couldn't demand because of First Amendment. Now, with uh, foreign nationals, it would be a different thing because they're prohibited from some th- things. But I do think of the alternatives in front of us that disclosure is uh, is a better one and could be done. Um, so – and also that – you. It does appear that the companies are willing to do that, perhaps uh, even to excess. I mean, any kind of political ad at all has to be disclosed, uh, not just ones that are about elections, which are the most direct concern, right? If you have a foreign country coming in and say, "Vote for Trump, vote against Hillary," that looks a lot like uh, election interference. But Facebook said, "Anything you say that's political, so people." Uh, publicizing political books have to disclose all that. Yeah, no, of
1: I, I I I think that's right. Although I frankly would be just as worried about a uh, foreign government message saying, you know, the CrowdStrike took the server to Ukraine. Uh, well. John I uh, apart from that I will leave you with the last word uh, uh, this has been a great interview John samples from Cato Institute uh, thanks to John thanks to Evan Abrams Matthew Hyman uh, David Chris and Nate Jones for joining me this has been episode 280 of the cyber law podcast brought to you by steptoe and Johnson please send us more guest suggestions at CyberlawPodcast law at steptoecom um, follow me on Twitter and and from time to time I actually do do uh, uh, Tweet out the stories we're thinking about running uh, 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 in the next uh, episode. Uh, And uh, uh, as with all podcasters that you've ever listened to, I'm going to beg you to go on uh, Apple, iTunes and elsewhere and give the show a rating and a good one. Uh, uh, The more reviews, the more ratings, the better. And then please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.